Now let us turn together to the New Testament scriptures in the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 15, and reading the first 19 verses of this glorious chapter on the theme of resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 19, and again we encourage all of you to follow the scripture reading in your Bible and to keep it open during the exposition of God's holy word. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. May God indeed bless to our understanding this great passage on the theme of resurrection. Thanks be indeed to his name. Now, as our deacon, Mr. Lewis, announced earlier in the announcements to the congregation we have chosen on this so-called Easter Sunday morning uh, to depart from the usual series in the life of Elisha in the Old Testament to focus our attention upon a theme that is appropriate when the minds of men generally are upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, in a sense, upon an Easter theme then this morning, 
as that glorious doctrine of the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead breaks open upon us from the Scriptures in its many-splendored light and its many-sided truth. It is indeed a most powerful and wonderful fundamental truth of our Christian faith. As we see that truth rising historically from the word of God upon the resurrection morning, as we remember that it returns annually at this season of Easter, as indeed it recurs weekly in the worship of God's people for every Lord's Day is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and as it remains continuously then before us. So we are to think about that theme of resurrection this morning. It is surely a tall and tremendous event in Scripture and in our faith that witnesses beyond every shadow of doubt that Jesus Christ is the Son of the Eternal God, the Conqueror of Death, the Lord of Life, the Establisher of Righteousness for His people, and the one means through which we are able to find the forgiveness of sin and the cleansing of ourselves to be made fit for the presence of God. Now, many people today would, of course, ask the question, did it really happen? It's a very vital question, as we're going to see this morning in our brief study of the chapter that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But you and I are aware this morning that we live in the midst of an age that someone has described as a deluge of unbelief, where every traditional doctrine of the Christian faith is under dispute and is in question, and particularly the doctrine of the resurrection bodily from the dead by our Lord Jesus Christ. You are aware of the great area of skepticism around the church where the average unbeliever will deny that great and cardinal truth that we would affirm as Christians. And even within the church, many of you are aware of the progress of liberalism and the teaching of liberal theologians, such as, for instance, Dr. Bultman, who referred many years ago to the resurrection of Jesus as a non-historical event. It is in the realm of mythology and not of history. Or another of those theologians that has greatly influenced the liberal church, Paul Tillich, who spoke of the resurrection as an absurdity compounded with blasphemy. And this is the very area in which we live today the one of skepticism and denial of this great and biblical truth. But we're also living in an age where we are impressed continually with the seriousness of the dominion of death. You know, I think what characterizes 20th century society, perhaps more than anything else, is the awareness of death. We know that our cultures are all dying and passing away. We realize the threat of overpopulation of the world. We are reminded on every hand by the prevalence of new plagues and diseases such as AIDS and the poverty in the 
uh, so-called third world that leads to premature death, we are reminded on every hand of death's dominion, that in life we live continually in the midst of death. And the universal cry of the human heart, in a sense, is, must dust be our destiny? Well, you see, it is these kind of things that make the message of 1 Corinthians 15 even more a necessary theme for us to consider and to be assured about. Of all the chapters in the whole of the Bible, this chapter stands tall and tremendous before us in its affirmation of the historicity and veracity and the efficacy, the powerfulness of the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. That for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus, dust is not their destiny in the end. And I'm reminded of John Knox in my own land of Scotland, who at the close of his long and eventful earthly career, on the very afternoon of his encounter with death, called the last enemy in scripture, sensing the end was near, he turned to his dear wife and had her read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, upon which he said, following the reading, Is not that a comfortable chapter? Oh, what sweet and salutary consolation the Lord has given me from the reading of it. And so as we turn to it, with the theme of three great sources of assurance, may God make it to us a great and salutary consolation also. Now then, resurrection assurances. How do we know that these things are for real? And I suggest to you that in the first 19 verses, there are three great grounds of assurance that the apostle deals with. The first one is that it has been foretold according to the scriptures of God's holy word. If you look there in verses 3 and 4 of the chapter, you see that that is the apostle's theme. For what I have received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to to the scriptures. It's mentioned twice over because evidently it is a great supporting pillar of the doctrine of the resurrection, that it is according to scripture. Now you remember that the Corinthian church had been founded by the apostles' ministry and the record of its founding is contained in chapter 18 of the book of Acts. There as a thriving cosmopolitan city of southern Greece, at the very crossroads for the east and west stood Corinth on the isthmus of Corinth. It was a city infamous for its immorality and its open practice of sin, being a seaport, prostitution, and every kind of sexual vice and evil flourished in the ancient Corinthian city. 
And there the great apostle Paul, you recall from Acts 18, spent no less than 18 months of consistent ministry in that vile place where idol worship and heathenism was the characteristic of its religion. And he had taught the Corinthians, evidently, the fundamental pillars of the Christian truth, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was raised again from the dead, according to the scriptures. And that church was built upon these twin pillars of truth, the death and the resurrection of Christ with obviously much other ancillary Christian truth being added to those two great foundations. Now, what the apostle is doing here, you see, in verses 3 and 4, is dealing with a question that had begun to become common among the Corinthian believers. And the question was quite simply this. Is the doctrine of the resurrection really to believed? be believed? And they were probably saying, well, this doctrine of the Christian faith defies common sense. It's contrary to common sense. It's contrary to all that we have learned. And how can we believe it and be committed to it, even though the apostle had taught it to us? And Paul begins to answer that question, you see, by reminding them that the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, and particularly the resurrection of Christ, is according to God's word. Now look at this. It is according to the Old Testament first, and secondly, it is according to the New Testament as well. Now our authority then for believing it is that it is taught in the Old Testament scripture. Do you remember our risen Lord himself? In Luke chapter 24, on the very day in which he was raised from the dead, went with two disciples on the road to the little village of Emmaus. And as they talked together, remember, it is recorded that the Lord Jesus opened the Old Testament scriptures to the understanding of those two unnamed disciples and began to teach them that Christ ought to have suffered these things and to have entered into his glory. And he taught these things from the Old Testament scriptures. Indeed, Luke tells us, beginning with Moses, that is the five books of Moses, he went all through the other scriptures that spoke of his suffering and the work of his atonement and the great truth of his resurrection, that he would enter into glory. Now, what a great pity that we don't have the detailed account of Christ's teaching from the Old Testament scriptures. How illuminating that would be for us as we see our Lord's own understanding of all those blessed truths that spoke of his ministry in the Old Covenant scriptures. But I'm sure, for instance, he spoke to them about the feast of the first fruits in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 10, how Three days after Passover, the first fruits of the barley harvest were to be gathered in as the first sign of returning life after the long wait of winter, when everything seemed to be entombed 
in death, and how this spoke of burial and resurrection. How he must have reminded them from Psalm 16 that we read this morning, verses 10 and 11, that David's inspired hope was that God would not leave his body in the dust of death, but would raise it into communion with himself again. And how David spoke prophetically of the resurrection of one greater than David, great David's greatest son. How in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, David prophesies, the Lord spoke to my Lord, that one who will be greater than myself and who is of my offspring. The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord Jesus, take your authority and reign in heaven, in effect, that he is seated at the right hand of God in glory. This speaks of resurrection from the dead and ascension to the highest place of honor. How in Isaiah 53, verses 9 and 10, Isaiah speaks of the Christ making his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. But, he says, he shall see his offspring, the spiritual result of his work, and he shall prolong his life. How? By the resurrection from the dead. And so we could go on. In the Old Testament scripture, my dear friends, this morning, resoundingly, the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ is powerfully proclaimed. Now, secondly, in the New Testament, it is also according to scripture. Time would fail us this morning to mention the Gospels, The record of Christ's resurrection differs the one from the other. There are circumstances in one gospel not recorded in another. But that is the very genius of true eyewitness testimony. That if all the eyewitnesses saw the same events in the same way, you begin to suspect that there is deliberate forethought and fabrication. And you look at the orderliness of the tomb that is described, for instance, in John's Gospel. And you say to yourself, the explanation for the empty tomb is by no act of vandalism from the outside, with someone coming and violently taking the body away and leaving the tomb in disorder. But the very order of the tomb speaks of the sovereignty of death having been overcome from the inside as the body itself, wrapped in the grave clothes, has simply passed through them and left the grave clothes lying in the very place where the body had been. You come to the Acts of the Apostles. You look at the 13 sermons in the Acts of the Apostles, and almost every one of them emphasizes the centrality of the death of Christ and the glory of his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God as a central doctrine of the Christian faith. You turn to the epistles, and sometimes in the most surprising places, you come across the casual affirmation that the Christ who was dead and buried has been raised as an evidence of the power of God and of dominion over the terrible tyranny of death. As in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you what I also received. Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures, was raised again according to the scriptures. My dear friends, I say to you with full assurance this morning, the first ground then of belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that God's holy and undeniable word affirms it. As J.G. Machen put it, the thing that was laid in the tomb in the burial was the body, and the thing that was laid in the tomb was the thing that came out of the tomb on the day of resurrection. And we believe, beloved, in the resurrection of Jesus because it is recorded in the Bible. Now, secondly, the second resurrection assurance is that it is a fact according to eyewitness testimony. Do you look with me at verses 5 through 11 and see how the Apostle Paul delivers this to the doubting Corinthians, verses 5 through 11? He affirms that the risen Christ was actually seen. Now, this is a very, very significant passage, I suggest to you, because here is not the same record, you see, as is given to us in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but here is the apostles' own selective list of witnesses that he is aware of. As one evangelical scholar put it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most authenticated events in the whole history of this world. And he is right. Now look at them. In verse 5, for instance, he appeared, says the apostle, to Peter. Now Peter had known the Lord Jesus intimately. He was one of the inner three of the disciples. You remember Peter and James and John who were taken up into the Mount of Transfiguration, who on the night of Christ's betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane were drawn aside from the others that they might be near their suffering Lord and might encourage him in the Garden of the Agony. There was an intimate acquaintance between Peter and his Lord. But Peter came and saw the empty tomb in John chapter 20. He saw the risen Christ, moreover, in the same chapter as he appeared before the disciples in the midst of the upper room when the doors, you recall, were all locked. And it was this same man who denied the Lord Jesus shortly before, who only a matter of days afterwards was preaching powerfully in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. As it had been prophesied, he reminded the Jews in Psalm 16 that we read this morning. There can be no other explanation for the change in conduct of this man who denied his Lord and who knew him intimately to the boldness with which he proclaimed him, no other explanation than the resurrection of Jesus bodily from the dead. It was not an hallucination that this man saw. It was something that so convinced the cowardly Peter that he laid his life on the line in proclaiming it openly in the very citadel of Jesus' enemies in Jerusalem. 
Look again at verse 5, the appearance to the twelve. Now one man, one man might hallucinate, but do twelve people hallucinate simultaneously together? Later on, as we'll see in a moment, do five hundred people simultaneously hallucinate? Now clearly, when the twelve saw the Lord Jesus, they saw him bodily. And one of them, you remember Thomas, who was not there on the first occasion of his appearance, saw him later and had affirmed, unless I am able to put my finger into the print of the nails and with my hand touch that sword thrust in his side, I will not believe. And this one of the twelve fell down before his Lord on that second occasion and simply said to him, My Lord and my God the appearance to the twelve. In verse 6, the appearance to 500 brethren. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. It's not recorded in the Gospels. This is something that Paul uniquely tells us about. And some of them were still alive, he says. If you doubt what I'm saying is the implication, go and ask these people. They're living witnesses. And this is merely... Twenty years after the event took place, it's still in the span of their lifetime. And he appeared to James, verse 7, look at that, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, the author of the letter of James, not the apostle, but the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, who was an unbeliever as all of Jesus' family were unbelievers. But our Lord, for his own sovereign purposes, singled out this one member of his own unbelieving family to appear to him personally. And in that extraordinary experience of being confronted by the risen Lord Jesus, this skeptic, you see, became a believing man. And he later wrote, at the beginning of the letter of James, further on in the New Testament, James, the servant of God and of Jesus Christ. He had come to believe in him through an encounter with the risen Lord. And finally, look at verse 7 through 11. To Paul himself, that great arch-persecutor of the Christian church, who denied the doctrine of the resurrection and of the deity of Jesus who came to the turning point of his life on the road to Damascus and became from a persecutor, a preacher, from an antagonist to the Christian gospel and to the Lord Jesus to be the greatest ambassador of those truths that the world has ever seen. What happened to change this man on the Damascus road? He saw the Lord Jesus in a glory that shone more brightly than the midday sun, as resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God. And it led to his transformed character on the basis of the indisputable evidence that Christ is risen indeed. Now, if we believe this doctrine, beloved, because it is affirmed in Scripture, we believe it secondly because it is confirmed by eyewitness testimony. And I commend it to you as one of the best attested events in all of human history.
Thirdly, as we finish, it is finally fulfilled according to Christian experience. Look at verses 12 through 19. And what I mean by that passage in summary is this, that the very existence of the Christian church is confirmation of the resurrection truth. You think about that for a moment. If Jesus had remained under the power of death, Paul, in effect, is saying, there would be no Christian church in the world. Why? Because we would have a leader who himself had been overcome by sin and evil. We would have, at best, a man who was a wonderful example of the way in which men should live, but in the end, a helpless martyr for a good cause. And the very existence of the Christian church, the apostle is saying, really, in summary, is the continuing evidence of the reality of Christ's resurrection. You see, the existence of the church is traced back in the end, not only to the cross of Calvary, but also to the empty tomb as well. The twin pillars, remember, from earlier in the chapter, is Christ delivered for our sins according to the scriptures and raised again from the dead according to the scriptures. It is faith not only in a crucified Savior, but in a glorious, risen, ascended Lord. Now you notice in verse 12 then that some were attesting or asserting that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now what they were actually saying, it becomes clear in the context, is not necessarily that Christ himself had not been risen. They may have believed that. But they're saying there's no resurrection for us. That's where our minds balk. The dead don't come back to life Again, they were saying. And probably this was through the teaching that was current in Corinth by those philosophical parties, the Epicureans, that believed very much that the essence of life is all pleasure and material, and after death, you're done for. Or the Stoics, who did believe in some kind of vague existence afterwards, but said it was certainly not bodily, and it was mystical in the sense that if you did have any existence, you were united in some way with the deity and swallowed up by him. Now, in the light, you see, of that questioning, Paul says a number of things in verses 14 through 19 that I'll just touch on very briefly. He says, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then, in effect, you notice, there is no gospel. There's no message of good news. Why? Because the cross of Calvary is the only termination of the Christian faith. And all that we can learn from the cross of Calvary is that good was put to death there and in the end evil triumphed over the good. We cannot preach that Christ is the author of an eternal salvation to needy sinners and has overcome death and sin and all its consequences. Everything ends in crucifixion and the darkness of the grave, unrelieved. And then he says, you see, if there is no resurrection, 
then indeed there is no integrity in the church's ministry. Our preaching is in vain, he says, or vain, and your faith is also vain. And by that he means it's an empty thing. There's no substance to it. We're proclaiming things in the end that have no integrity in them at all. And we're expecting you to believe them. And we ourselves would be, in that event, liars and deceivers. Now, the third thing he says is, of course, there's no salvation if there's no resurrection from the dead. You are yet, verse 17, in your sins. Now, that's very significant, isn't it? Because it means that the sacrifice of the Holy Son of God on the altar of Calvary was without effect. We are still in the position we were in before, dead in trespasses and sins, under the wrath of God and his just condemnation for all our evil doing and our sinful nature that we have inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And there is simply no salvation, a dreadful consequences, consequence of denying the resurrection. And finally, if you look in verses 18 and 19, there is no hope for the future. In other words, the grave is the end of life. The living hope that should sustain us beyond the grave is taken from us. And in effect, the eternal inheritance for believers has disappeared into the tomb. And you know, at the time Paul wrote this, or shortly after, in Rome, the catacombs were being formed, and the Christian dead were being laid to rest. And you can go through there again today, and you see the inscriptions carved in the stone beneath the ancient city of Rome in the catacombs, respecting Christians. Alexandria, in Christo, in Christ, the Lord. Demetrius sleeps in peace, in Christo, in Christ. And a little further on, you see the graves of unbelievers, and once their bodies rested there on the cold rock shelves, and the inscriptions there are so different, alas, alas, poor Caius is gone, and with him all my hope is quenched forever. And only dark despair. And that's what it would be for the Christian if the resurrection truth can be denied. And so, you see, according to Christian experience, the very existence and testimony of the church bears witness to the reality and fulfillment of the resurrection. Without it, there's no gospel. Without it, the message has no integrity. Without it, there's no possibility of salvation and no hope of everlasting life. Well, in conclusion, let me say this. Is dust to be our destiny, my dear friend, this morning? Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, take this truth. It is set out in the scripture. It is confirmed 
undeniably by eyewitness testimony of the most persuasive kind. It is fulfilled in Christian experience. Rejoice, but these things are not figments of our imagination. No, not for a moment, but they are indeed, in the words of John Knox, a comfortable, sweet and salutary consolation that the Lord affords every believer out of this great chapter. But if you're an unbeliever this morning, I have to say to you, dust will be your destiny. And more and worse than that, the accounting day before the judgment throne of God himself, where that man who has been raised from the dead and sits presently at the right hand of God in greatest glory will be your judge and will say to you in that solemn day, why did you not believe and take seriously the work that I did for your salvation, offering it freely to you and setting the seal upon it by my glorious resurrection from the dead? Why did you not believe it? Why did you not receive it? Because now only eternal perdition awaits you. Oh, my friend, I appeal to you, if you are an unbeliever this morning, listen to the message of Scripture. It is true from beginning to end. And these are the most vital and most important things that truly you will ever consider in your whole life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive these resurrection assurances and to you also, they will be a fund of consolation to your soul and to your everlasting prosperity. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven this morning, we're thankful for this message that the apostle has brought regarding the assured truth of Christ being delivered not only for our sins, but also being raised for our justification. Enable us to rejoice and enter into these things, knowing them as full persuasions of what actually and historically took place, that our salvation might not exist in the realm of myth and genealogy, but in the realm of fact and of history, but is attested to by the clearest of all witnesses. And may the joy of these things increasingly be ours. For Jesus' sake, amen.